Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I'm ESG Clarity Global Deputy Editor Natasha Turner. And before we get into the episode today, there's just a little bit of housekeeping for me. So you may have read on our site that we have some exciting new changes to the podcast. The first is that we've just launched in the US. Many of you will know that I was out there for a month in February, and so to complement the refreshed and revived content on our US site, we've launched ESG Out Loud US, which is hosted by our US news editor, Emil. Um, That's already up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, Uh, so do go and find it and have a listen and subscribe. But back to this pod, we're really excited also to bring you a new format. So each month alongside our industry interviews, we're going to be sharing a clip from a chat that I had with oceanographer and climate scientist Dr Emma Boland. We'll also still be running our sector specials as usual, those episodes will will carry on as normal. So Boland is an oceanographer with the British Antarctic Survey working in Cambridge. She studies, as she puts it, the weather of the oceans and the impact of climate change and is involved in some fascinating research at the forefront of climate science. Following your feedback, we're really excited to bring you someone outside the industry that's out there working in the field, really doing the work and her experiences of that and what she's found. And there's some really interesting bits that I'm excited to share, particularly her explanation of actually being able to touch and feel the atmosphere from many, many, many years ago. So it's it's really exciting stuff. Over the next four episodes, starting today, you'll hear first about her journey into oceanography and a trip to the Antarctic which she took. In the next episode, it'll be her work on the Project Orchestra. Following that, her work on the Project Smurfs. There's some great acronyms here. It's just like the ESG Investing World. And then her outlook on climate and the role finance can play in that. But before that, in today's episode, what investment editor Rory Palmer has spoken to Jacob Thomas, Managing Director of the Two Degrees Investing Initiative. Of course, in terms of news this month, we've had disappointment from the UK's energy strategy, as well as, obviously, another dire warning from the IPCC. But we're also hurtling into proxy season, so I'll certainly be cracking out the popcorn for that. As always, do get in touch, like, subscribe, rate us, wherever you get your podcasts. Please enjoy these conversations with Jacob and Emma. I'm your host, Rory Palmer, editor of What Investment. Joining me today, we have Jacob Tomei, executive director at the Two Degrees Investing Initiative. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks for getting to join. It's fun. Fantastic. So this episode, we're looking at sustainable investing and how retail investors can become more informed about the funds in their own portfolio. So, Jacob, what is Two Degrees and, and how did the concept of the investing platform, My Fair Money, come about? So, we are a nonprofit think tank and basically came out as a bit of a startup think tank concept, right? So, you have this idea of, you know, uh, organizations, the startup culture in Silicon Valley and healthcare and tech and everything else. But actually, the think tank world sometimes can be quite staid. There's big donors or large institutional bankings. And and what we try to do really when we launch the organization is just sort of to start from an independent perspective. And what we mean with that is that we're not representing civil society. We're not representing big corporate donors. We're bringing these different voices together to try and bring some insight and understanding into the market. And we started that conversation about eight years ago, very much focused on the question of climate change and how climate calls can be integrated into financial markets, into decision-making, investment decision-making. 
And obviously, at the very beginning, a lot of our work was also very much focused on institutional investors. We talked to pension funds, insurance companies. We worked with them on better data to track sustainability and all the rest. Uh, but we really realized in this process that so much of the decision making that takes place in financial markets is driven by individuals like you and me. It's we're the pension fund beneficiaries. So we have the insurance products. We're the retail investors. Uh, we're the ultimate asset owners, if you will. And, and as a result, what we want actually matters, or at the very least, it should matter. Because as you, once you drill into these things, you realize that even though you know, people like you and me are the ultimate asset owners, um, a lot of the objectives that we have when it comes to what should happen with our money don't necessarily translate into what is happening with our money. And that's how the idea of this platform came about, uh, which we, you know, the platform My Fair Money, which we launched two years ago in Germany and last year in the UK. Uh, to really be able to educate individuals, pension fund beneficiaries, retail investors in particular, about what the opportunities are with doing what you can do with your money and to be able to try and try and drive based on surveys. We know there's a lot of it. The sustainability preferences, not just in supermarkets, but also in financial markets. And how has this been uh, received by investors? Has there been a, a strong demand from the outset or did something like COP26 really drive this investor demand for this platform? So we do feel like there's actually been a pretty strong demand for it in the outset. And I think one of the reasons for that is that people are thirsty for understanding the topic better. And uh, it's, I think that is driven by not just COP26, but things like Fridays for Future, obviously. Even the climate protests that we see in the UK, you know, with people blocking the M25. Now, it's a controversial thing, but it draws a lot of attention. A lot of people are saying, well, what is actually going on? Why are people so motivated about this that they're gluing themselves to, to the M25, right? And so I think that has driven a lot of the attention. But I think also, you know, this go, probably goes back to the financial crisis, really, but also even things like Bitcoin. People do want to think more intelligently and eloquently about their money, and like I said, not just in terms of how they consume, but also how they save and how they invest. Uh, and they have bigger expectations to, to the people that do that work for them. Um, now, the challenge is, uh, you know, when you go into a supermarket and you say, I want the meat-free chicken, and they say, well, we, don't, you, we have the meat-free beef, you feel like you are eye-to-eye with the person you're talking to, right? You feel like, mm -hmm. okay, look, listen, uh, you know, I know what I'm talking about when I say free range eggs. I mean, I might not be a sustainability expert, but nor is the person trying to sell me the free range eggs or the cage 10 eggs. In finance, I think there we often feel a bit intimidated, right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that. They kind of think, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I've done my research, but then somebody comes in, a big you know, financial institution comes, comes in and tells you what to do or has all the experience. And what we want to do with the platform is to level the playing field a little bit. Not, that doesn't mean that every platform user ends up with the more sustainable product. It just means that they have a more level playing field and more just information to be able to make the right choices. And, and I think that's, that's what's allowed us to be successful so far in getting a lot of people interested. Well, I guess it's a difficult tightrope that investors have to walk between engagement and exclusion. Because at the same time, these companies, that they need to change, they need to adapt. Um, but also, you know, looking at the companies of the future is is where and a lot of these companies have had time to change and they haven't. It's a mm -hmm. tough one, isn't it? Yeah, it's really complicated because 
you know, there's obviously also just a worry. Is it a fig leaf, right? You know, the big institutional investors saying, don't worry, we're investing in all these companies because we're engaging and we're changing them and so on. Um, and, and in practice, you know, every year they, they take out the dividends and uh, instead of making sure those get reinvested into green projects, right? I mean, if you're really serious about engaging, why are you taking dividends for, for this company that could be invested in renewable power? And there's an interesting case where uh, a company actually in Europe, they suggested to their shareholders exactly that. They said, all right, you want to be sustainable, then, uh, you know, we'll cut your dividends by two cents a share. And, and we'll put that in, in green projects that we otherwise wouldn't be able to invest in. Investors said, mm, actually, no, we're all right. <laughs> so that, there are limits to this engagement piece, but there are also limits to the divestment piece. So, you know, I think, I think it's, again, something where people have to think about what, what kind of priorities they have and, and, and where do they draw the line. I mean, typically, I think it's becoming clearer that a lot of the engagement strategies now tend to focus on companies with a credible transition concept. You know, the auto sector is a perfect example for that, right? You see a lot of change happening there at the moment. Being a pure play coal mining company in the Appalachian Mountains in the States, maybe the engagement story there is a bit less convincing. And I think that type of nuance is starting to materialize and is really helpful, I think, for, for making sure we, we stop necessarily being so binary about do you do use your shareholder rights or do you exit the story? Uh, going back to the platform, how many funds are currently on there uh, and how do you assess them? How do you rank those different strategies? Sure. So we have 11,000 funds in total, but we don't, depending on where you're based in the world, you don't get to see all of them, right? So we try and filter a little bit by different geographies. Um, uh, we have several thousand in the UK, of course, and then some for the French market and the German market, some other European markets. Um, and uh, but you know that that covers a decent share. You know, with a couple of thousand funds, you can already get a pretty good sense of of what your opportunity set is in the market, right? It's already way more than what you typically see in a in a one on one conversation with the broker. Um, how do we assess and rank them? So we don't rank them because. Ranking them would suggest that there is one way, right? It's, you know, we're not in the Premier League where we all play by the same rules and you'd score this many goals and then, and then you win the game and then you win the title. And at the end of the day, it's these five clubs, right? So here, as we just talked about, right, if you really care about climate change, this one fund really good on climate change might be a perfect fit. If you care about social issues, you don't, maybe this climate change fund isn't a good fit for you. So what we try and do is really bring a bunch of different data together. And then let the user navigate that in, a, in what we hope is a quite intuitive way. You don't have to, you know, do any, you just basically can look at really three different things on the platform. One of them is for the ethical investor, are they invested in anything I don't like, right? That's the first thing you can do with the funds is, are they in palm oil or coal or nuclear or gambling or alcohol, right? We already talked about some of these things. So uh, animal testing is another one, you know, so that's, um, that's, basically one way we um, you can look at it. The other one is we have some different third-party scores and labels, you know? So when we go into the supermarket, we look at the labels and they are also fund labels. So you can see which funds have this label or another label, which fund has an, an A score from the data provider we work with called ISS ESG, which is one of the largest ESG data providers in the world. Uh, so, you know, we have this sort of... Um, this perspective as well. So somebody else, an expert said, this is a good thing. Basically, I think that's also important. Um, and then we have a discrete set of climate scores 
that really drill into the climate agenda. And that's obviously where our bread is buttered as an organization on our side, um, but also just where a lot of the attention is from people who are getting into sustainable investing, often as climate is the first port of call. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to say, you know, we don't, this isn't a rating or a ranking or or even necessarily a matching process, but gives the opportunities to explore. And what I think is interesting is just also seeing how fund managers have responded have responded to that as well. I think that's a good segue into climate and of the listeners of the podcast. When we spoke before, I was describing a moment at COP and the talk that I went to where someone said that in terms of sustainable energy, what we do in Europe is akin to shuffling deck chairs uh, on the Titanic. And I think at the time you said the framing of that was a bit unfair. <laughs> Is that still a guess? Yeah, sure. I think it's, you know, it's it's one of my pet peeves, I would say, that in sustainability, we always or very often take this binary view. And again, I'm, I know people can relate to this in their personal life. It's like either you're vegan or vegetarian or you're basically going to hell, right? We don't have this nuance of saying, listen, actually, you know, when you, if you have a, if you just cut out beef and lamb from your diet, right, you can reduce your carbon footprint of your food intake by 30, 40%. You can still eat all the chicken you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or all the pork. Just beef and lamb is almost half of your carbon footprint for food, for your food intake. So, you know, it's, it's, there's actually a lot we can do in the margins. There's a lot of wonder and insight and potential there. And, and kind of saying, look, it doesn't matter what we do in Europe because everything is about China and India and Brazil, I think is cutting short thrift to the fact that it, it does actually matter. We're, you know, Europe and the UK, we're still, you know, one of the largest emitting regions in the world and, and reducing our footprint dramatically will also have material impact on climate and ultimately, incidentally, also on people dying from climate change, which I think is the other piece that often gets forgotten in the story. That it's not just the pandas and the bees, but also you know, the people dying from climate change. And, you know, we're having this conversation today on a on a um, uh, meeting platform. Uh, the fact that we're having this without a video, for example, reduces the carbon footprint of this conversation we're having right now, according to a study I just read, by 80%. So there are a lot of things that we can do. That it's not just because we don't do everything doesn't mean it's just shuffling deck chairs in the Titanic. And so that's true for the same way when we invest primarily in Europe, which we're likely to do if we're a European investor. You know, there's still a lot of potential. Europe is home to, uh, and and if you want to take the United States as just sort of a slightly bigger uh, circle of influence, it's home to the uh, most of the car manufacturers in the world. Uh, it's home to uh, many of the largest oil and gas companies in the world. It's home to uh, many large industrial companies in the steel and cement sector. So it's not just remember that we're investing in Europe and as a result, we're just investing in European power plants. Uh, you know, this is potentially transformative for what these companies, these multinational companies are doing around the world. And and I think shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, yeah, I think it's a it's a little bit uh, unfair. Uh, uh, we might be we might be sinking, but uh, trying to get as many people on the lifeboats as possible is not a is not a task that should be lightly dismissed. I think he was. Uh... <laughs> He was being nice and tongue in cheek in what was a very serious <laughs> overall conference. Um, but do you think do you think in that as well that there lies the problem, the fact that ESG perhaps as a concept is just too convoluted and trying to marry together three quite difficult concepts 
altogether and, and therefore investors, as, as you say, maybe going down uh, the meat avenue. But then there's so many other aspects to it as well that it becomes quite almost overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it is it is definitely overwhelming. And uh, I think it's um, we have we have a lot of blame to take for that. You know, people like myself, whose day job it is to to count the beans, if you will, of sustainability to figure out, oh, here you have three tons and here you have five tons of carbon and there over there we have seven and kind of add all these numbers up with our little uh, abacus, right, sitting in our dark, dusty corners of, of corporate offices or in NGOs. I think that's sometimes created this phenomenon you describe, right? You're kind of in this situation where you say, okay, we this is such an awesome challenge that the only way we can wrap our head around is by trying to count everything. But by counting everything, it feels convoluted, right? It feels kind of abstract. What does it mean? You know, if I say to you, I have my, the carbon footprint of my food intake is four, four, um, uh, uh, four tons. Is that a lot? Is that not a lot? Does that make sense? Does it not make sense? Right? So it's, I think these types of things where, um, we really need to, um, need to think about how we can translate that into things that make more sense. And and there's actually two interesting pieces here that are coming, you know, that are coming forward. And I think they're, they're really worth exploring. One of them is that ESG, you know, is, is this sort of, is a bit of this nineties concept, right? It's already such a weird thing. So, right. So what does ESG stand for? Environment, social governance. What do these things have to do with each other? Right. Why do we have them throw them all together? Um, you know, I was telling you about, um, there's this ministry that was formed in, in the 90s and under the labor German labor government at the time where they basically had it was a ministry for women and sports and family and gender issues and I think migration and like kind of all the topics, <laughs> literally all the topics that if we're honest, the, the labor government at the time didn't really care about enough to justify having <laughs> their own ministry. And that's changing, right? we now have people who care about climate and that's their thing. And that's what they're focused on. And they don't care about ESG. They just care about climate. And actually we also have a growing number of people who really only care about social issues or we have people who care about animal rights. Right. And that's not the same thing as climate. And I think products and funds are developing that we can no longer have to feel like there's this blob of ESG that involves all these different topics with all these different confusions, but that we can nuance these topics um, in a way that, um, in a way that speaks to the individual thing. And climate is already complex enough, but it's definitely less complex than trying to solve the climate crisis, modern day slavery, gender inequality, all at the same time, all under one umbrella term. And by the way, sorry, just to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't try and solve all these problems. I'm just saying maybe we should each give them their chance to speak for themselves rather than throwing them all in a bag in one bag and saying, here we go, here's, here's how we can fix it. Absolutely. And <laughs> dragging this 90s concepts into the 2020s, what needs to happen in ESG in the short term and, and you know, in the long term as well to make this journey easier for the average investor? So I think we, a lot, <laughs> a lot needs to happen. I think we're very much <laughs> not doing the job that we should be doing. And that's again, why, we launched this My Fair Money platform because, you know, when we when we talked about what such a platform would look like, um, we said, look, we definitely obviously need to have a fun database. We need people to answer. We need people to be able to figure out their profile. But we also just need to make it accessible and not kind of move away from all these 
technical terms and all these complicated concepts. And I think we just need to speak English, literally, right? And I was reading this book the other day about how the Medici family in the Middle Ages, they were using, invented all these complicated financial terms to justify them making up margins when they went to the medieval markets at the time to to provide financial services. And I think sometimes it still feels like that today, doesn't it, right? There's all these terms and uh, CDOs and what have you, and what do they mean? And I think that's the first thing that needs to happen, right? We need to speak plain English. We need to stop guilt tripping people as well. I think that's the second piece, right? It feels like, I don't think guilt is actually a very productive way to feel about this topic. It actually turns people off because they feel desperate. They feel helpless. It's whatever I do, I can't fix it anyway. And and so I might as well just not do anything at all. And we can just kind of say, look, listen, you you don't need to solve all the problems at the same time. What do you care about? Let's focus on that. And that's actually an easy way for you to put your take your money out of a fund that doesn't consider climate change and one that does. There's a lot of options and they come with very attractive risk return profiles as well. And you don't need to feel guilty about not solving, you know, uh, all the other topics at the same time. That's already better than doing nothing, right? And I think that's that's really the the second piece. And the third piece goes back to what we talked about before about this ethical and sustainable investor. I think we really just need to disentangle what we're trying to do. And uh, are you, are you, do you want to just not touch the disgusting? Do you want to maybe uh, actually invest in opportunities? You know, there's interesting pure play, green funds, small cap, mid cap funds, and there's higher risk potentially, but also just a lot of upside in the, in the new green economy, if you will. Or do you want to try and change the world and invest in a fund that might have the big auto companies or the big oil and gas companies, but you do a lot of engagement? And I think that's really the the third piece that we're, um, uh, I think that's quite important. I think that's an excellent way of putting it. And often these things start with that first difficult single step, right? And then once you do, sometimes everything looks a lot easier after that. Yeah, it's absolutely. And I think that's, that's i'm sorry i'm just going to repeat what you just said but it couldn't be more true it couldn't be more true it just feels whether you're cleaning your room or whether you're investing in capital markets you just have to start and once you do you realize okay i can do this i can clean my room and i can actually take ownership and take agency because it's your money right i mean out the people out there listening that's your money it's not financial institutions money it's not uh, the corporate's money, it's your money and what you plan to do with it. So you decide. And it's sometimes a bit intimidating to decide. And uh, like I said, uh, a lot of the bean counters like myself don't always help in the process by, you know, throwing a hundred pages of sustainability data at you and saying, now figure it out. But the options are there. There's tools that can help you navigate this. You know, I should have said this off top, but my fair money is non-commercial, Rory, right? It's there's, you can't buy anything on the platform. So we're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to steer you into a specific direction. It's 100% non-commercial. You can't buy something on the platform if you tried. We don't even have ads for anything, right? Mm. There's really nothing on there that is any way commercial. And, and that's obviously really important for trust building. But that means there's a bit of a safe space there as well to, to take the next step. Thanks to Rory and Jacob there for a really insightful conversation. And next, I'm very pleased to be able to share the first clip from my chat with Emma Boland. 
So can you tell me, first of all, how you became interested in oceanography? Was there a certain uh, thing that really inspired you to do this kind of work? What's what's the story there? Sure, I can tell you about that. Um, first, I thought it might be useful to explain what oceanography is. Yes. Um, maybe your listeners don't know. I certainly actually did not know before I became an oceanographer what oceanography was. So it's a branch of climate science and much like an atmospheric scientist might study the atmosphere um, and the weather that goes on in it, oceanographers study the ocean. So we look at how different um, bodies of water with different properties like different amounts of heat or salt move around the ocean how they interact with each other and how they interact with the atmosphere. So you might have an observation list. So an oceanographer who goes out and takes measurements in person, or you might have somebody like me who looks at the ocean in a climate model. So I first became interested in oceanography when I studied it for my PhD. Uh, I was an undergraduate physicist at Imperial College London, and I really enjoyed that degree. Um, one of the courses I really liked there was atmospheric physics, and I thought um, maybe I wanted to be an atmospheric scientist, actually. I thought it's a, I enjoyed the kind of very applied math side of it. I also liked that it had a real world application. You could look out of the window, see the atmosphere. So there's a kind of connection there with the real world, rather than things that part, like particle physics that felt a bit more abstract to me. So I um, talked to a few different universities and I ended up talking to the University of Cambridge where they said, well, we don't actually have any um, funding for an atmospheric PhD at the moment, but if you were interested, you could study oceanography instead and you'd get to go on a trip to Antarctica. So I said, yes, please sign me yeah. up. <laughs> so I ended up doing my PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge, but also jointly with the British Antarctic Survey, which is where I still am. Uh, so can you explain the British Antarctic Survey for people who might not know? Yeah, of course. So the British Antarctic Survey is the UK's Polar Research Institute. We are the representative of the UK in Antarctica, uh, where we run several research stations. And we also manage research vessels. Uh, so our new research vessel that you might have heard of is the Sir David Attenborough. And actually the SDA, as we call it, just finished its uh, sea trials in Antarctica. So we're all very excited about that because we'll get to get our hands on it as scientists and do some real research with it soon. So the British Antarctic Survey supports all UK scientists working in Antarctica and, and some in the Arctic as well. But um, it also has its own scientists like myself who directly work for the British Antarctic Survey. So we've got scientists from a range of disciplines like biology, ecology, space scientists, ice scientists, oceanographers like myself. So we're, it's a real range of backgrounds, but everybody is an expert in the polar regions. Great. Okay, so just going back a bit, what was the trip to Antarctica like for your PhD? I mean, that sounds like an obvious yes, right, when they offered that. So what was that trip like? That was really exciting. So it was a an kind of international uh, team. There was scientists from America uh, and scientists from a few different institutes in the UK. So it was um, it was really fun as a PhD student to just kind of get, get hands on and find out what it was really all about. Um, so we're in the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica. And it's the kind of, it's known as the kind of harshest ocean in the world. It's got the strongest winds. It's very desolate and remote. You're kind of very far from anywhere. You have to, I think we took three flights to even before we could even get on the, the vessel. Um, and then you're out at sea, um, 
in the middle of nowhere, basically <laughs> for weeks on end. Um, and the kind of science never sleeps. The ship um, takes a lot of resources to run, so we can't afford any off time. So you're on shift. There's three different shifts of scientists working eight hour shifts, so 24 seven science going on um, seven days a week. Uh, and it's really fun. But then also after a while, you're like, oh, this is very tiring. <laughs> so you kind of look forward to getting back to land. But um, it is a lot of people, especially at British Antarctic Survey, go back every season. And I, I admire them. I, um, I enjoyed it. And I think I might like to go again, but I'm not sure if I'd want to go every year. <laughs> yeah. Have, have you been on many boats before? Was there the kind of challenge of also, I mean, I can't imagine what being in a really rough sea would be like. I mean, it sounds quite yeah, scary. It is. We had our own GP on board who could give um, sickness medication if you needed it. Um, luckily, I've got quite a strong travel stomach. Um, I've been on small boats before sailing and things. Uh, I don't really get seasick. So even I kind of felt very tired all the time. That's kind of very common because you're constantly moving and you're constantly adjusting to that. But um I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't actually feel too bad, although I know some people did. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think, I think I might be one of those that felt a bit sick, to be honest. But um, <laughs> yeah, I probably won't be doing that anytime soon. So that's all right. Um, to go back to your point about uh, the thing drawing you into atmospheric science, science being the connection with a kind of real world, you can look out the window and, and, uh, and see it. Um, what are some of the impacts of uh, like the climate of the ocean, you know, extreme weather events, uh, like tsunamis and things like why, what is the purpose of studying the climate of the ocean, I suppose, is what I'm asking. No, that's a good question. So the ocean actually has taken up over 90% of the heat that's gone into the climate system that, that has been added by humans. So basically it's doing a really important job, it's taking up almost all of the heat, so it's really important as climate scientists to understand what that heat is doing to the ocean. Is the ocean going to continue to keep taking up heat? Um, and we often call the Southern Ocean the, the lungs of the ocean because it actually takes up quite a lot of that. So of, of that 90%, so that's nine out of 10 kind of units of heat that go we've added to the climate system are going in the ocean. Of that, about three quarters of that goes in in the Southern Ocean. So that's why we at the British Antarctic Survey study the Southern Ocean so much and think it's really important to keep studying it is to improve our understanding of those processes. So if that heat didn't go into the ocean, it would stay in the atmosphere and the effects of climate change that we feel would be so much worse. So it's really important to keep improving our understanding of the processes that um, go on in the ocean, how, they, how that heat enters the ocean, where it goes, what it does when it's in the ocean. So one extreme example in, um, in, from the movies would be The Day After Tomorrow, where um, that was based on the kind of idea that the Gulf Stream, which is a current of warm water that comes off the coast of North America and keeps Western Europe and the UK relatively warm, uh, compared to other places like Siberia that are at similar latitudes. What if that kind of was shut down and the whole earth started to get really cold? So the northern uh, northern hemisphere got really cold. So that's a kind of not something that we actually think will happen, but that's the kind of example of taking what might happen to an extreme. So we do expect the ocean currents 
to change as the ocean warms. And we're still basically trying uh, as, as oceanographers to understand the implications of that. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.